about that. I, I care less about the numbers game than about who the people in my audience actually are. What is worse, someone who's doing something that you think they have to be like so intentionally bad at doing in order to inflict as like a plot against you, or people who are just so stupid that they're doing that anyway, even if they don't want to hurt, uh, don't want to hurt you, right? Um, that the, the, the latter is actually worse. Uh, yeah, I encourage you to think about these ideas. That would be a great thing as well. I think he made the assumption that he was going on a, on a normal podcast with a normal audience who didn't listen to four-hour episodes. Uh, they're completely they're completely unwilling to address the elephant in the room, which is the mass racism conspiracy theory that plagues a lot of the institutions that they work at. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today we're doing something a bit different, a retrospective between seasons to take a look at episodes 1 to 10 and think about how they've changed my thinking and what they really mean. I'm not going to go through every single topic discussed in every episode, that would obviously take far, far too long, but really dive into some of the key narratives, at least in my perspective, and think about how I'm approaching both asking the questions and just reasoning about the world in general. As always, if you want to help the show, you can subscribe, you can leave a review, and the best thing, you can recommend it to a friend or just anyone you know. It helps them, helps the show, it's the most effective way. Alright. So, when I was thinking about putting the show together, this was actually all the way back in, this is all the way back in January of 2020, I was thinking about putting the show together, and the reason why I didn't do an interview podcast before was that I, I really wasn't familiar with enough people to the point where I had baked in enough of their thinking into uh, what I was doing to actually explore some new, new ground with them, or at least be sure I would be exploring new ground with them. And this is a very big problem in podcasts, in my opinion, because I think that there are many people who host podcasts uh, who still haven't done that with almost all of their guests. And I, I think there are a few exceptions. Uh, I think Lex certainly is someone who does uh, a good job really getting into unexplored territory. I think the Rebel Wisdom guys are pretty good, even though they're um, uh, they're a little bit uh, they're a little bit dubious sometimes. Uh, in general, there's a lack in the podcast arena of this kind of exploratory, almost kind of research-ish attitude to uh, taking a look at someone's ideas uh, that uh, I've been trying to fill in and hopefully I've succeeded in filling in that and if you don't think I've succeeded in filling that then uh, I'd really appreciate uh, doing that better tips on how to do that better in general though I think it's been I think it's been fairly good I think at least in terms of achieving the stated goals of the podcast I've been more than impressed just listening back on the episodes. That being said, there's of course probably a lot of room to improve on as well, and I'm not aware of all of the things that I could do to improve on, uh, otherwise I would already be doing them. <laughs> but uh, of course, I am very open to suggestions. Another thing that 
I think comes through in the podcast is that it is not necessarily something for uh, the general audience. Just the number of kind of semi-obscure insider references that I have. And this is necessarily uh, this isn't necessarily a mistake. This is by design. I talked a lot with Richard Hanania about this, about how uh, how a small, highly organized minority is often better than uh, the majority. Not that I ever hope to get the majority of Americans or the majority of people listening to this podcast, but that I, I care less about the numbers game than about who the people in my audience actually are. And, and this doesn't just mean I want like famous people, right? This is the this is the podcaster for podcasters, writers for writers bit. But I honestly think that's less important than just people who are doing things, who are engaging with the ideas, who even just like offering feedback. I, I don't think that's like quite enough, but people who are actively just engaging with the world and thinking about what these things mean uh, and generating ideas. I think that the total sum of all the ideas I generate across my lifetime are probably less than what I could inspire in my audience, even like the just the audience I have now uh, within, I think within just the first season, if they're all, if they're, if they're all uh, people who are, who are really engaging with the, with the subject matter. Like the, the numbers game is just that if you have people who are not engaging as, as opposed to if you have people who are engaging, the difference is just so uh, com completely different. It's night and day. That this is also one of the key things that I'm trying to accomplish. And then the third thing that I was thinking about when I was preparing when I was preparing this show is how I approach truth, especially with regards to people who I disagree with. How do I ask them questions? How do I try to get to the bottom of these things? And I'll talk more about this as we get to the end of the as we get to the end of this episode, because you might have noticed in uh, and this was actually completely by accident, but you might have noticed that as the episodes progressed, I ran into more and more people who I disagreed with and was more and more confident in having those dis disagreements uh, on the pod instead of just, you know, not talking about those topics. I mean, I don't know, there, there, there's a reason, there, there is a kind of selection bias here, where, where the reason why I started off the podcast interviewing Robin Hansen, uh, Steve Shu, Richard Hanania, is because they're, they are people who I think are really solid thinkers and who I have, I don't know, 90, 95% agreement with. But uh, the thing is, at least on their major ideas, I don't know, like, for example, Richard has a lot of just conservative, like normal conservative policy positions that I'm not sure I'm in agreement with. But it's just it's just a question of, of stuff that we talk about, or not just that, but stuff that he's kind of known for. Uh, I think we mostly agree on that. But you have uh, basically people who I've already really baked their ideas into my thinking, like I said before. And one problem with this, as we as we kind of reflect, is that this means that uh, even after interviewing them and getting their answers on some more interesting details, I don't think I ended up changing my thinking that much. Well, is that the end goal? Is the end goal to inspire people in my audience to think about those ideas? Maybe, maybe that, that kind of secondary goal makes up for it. Uh, I still think they were good conversations. They, they weren't necessarily... Uh, highly beneficial for kind of my my thinking personally, but I think they were I think they were good conversations, and maybe the maybe that I'm doing this, maybe that I'm like thinking thinking about this in in this way is already a huge positive, right? But I I, I do try to script every show so that there is this kind of not just narrative, not this continuity, 
uh, across episodes. But basically that you're you're leading people into you're you're kind of like trying to lead people into a gold mine right you're trying to lead people into a, an idea mine where where you can just like hit the rocks uh for for a day and really come away with things that are valuable things that people have not thought about before uh, hopefully or at least that very few people have thought about before and i think that's really the point of the podcast is to like find those find those like very idea rich areas and and explore them with my guests and with my audience so what are what are things that I've rather done? Uh, the <laughs> first thing that comes to mind is that there's this bug, or I don't know if this is a bug or a feature in Substack where they will like they will like pick up the images. They'll pick up the images from like links that you give. So you don't put. I'm not putting the images in the description of the podcast, but it just auto completes, right? So for example, this happened with Richard Hanania, and it happened with uh, Jacob Siegel, where they have podcasts as well. I link their podcast. Their podcasts have an image. That image automatically gets embedded into the article, and then Substack takes that article and makes it the cover image. And so it looks like, I, I don't know what it looks like, actually. It just looks like an episode from their podcast, right? But it's not. It's from my podcast. Um, and I don't know how to... I don't know how to uh, reset it, basically, so that it goes. That I change it back to the original, the original podcast logo. Um, but that, that's just kind of silly. I don't think anyone is like vastly changing the direction of their thinking because I've uh, <laughs> because I've uh, uploaded a podcast with the wrong cover image. Uh, I do think, yeah, I, I think that. Looking back on my interview with Robin Hansen, uh, I think even like this was already improved because I reflected on it. This was already improved after his interview. Like Steve Shu was much more um, exploring kind of on stuff that he hasn't talked about publicly before. But I think maybe the ratio of stuff that we've talked about already in public to stuff that we haven't talked about in Robin's interview is maybe like 75, 80% uh, stuff that he's already talked about before. Which I think is exactly the kind of podcast that I don't want to listen to, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it's exactly the kind of uh, of thing that I've I've since then tried to avoid. But I mean, I've already talked about this. I've already talked about what I want to do here. But yeah, that that was one regret with that episode in particular. I don't think most episodes are like this, though. I think most episodes have a very clear plan and very clear idea of what I want to discuss, what contingencies I want to have. I'll talk about those later. I think there are a few episodes where it was actually kind of difficult to get to the point that I wanted to talk about. And it's it's kind of obvious. Uh, part of that is, uh, part of that is uh, the episode that I had with uh, Rob Henderson and also, especially the finale, I think the, the start is like very, the, the start is like very, I don't think slow because Ron is just someone who speaks incredibly well. You can have this conversation. And I think I did a fairly good showing of this as well, of keeping it very uh, cordial, keeping it very uh, lively, even when we are kind of failing to start to get to the eventual uh, discussions that I want to have. But we got there. We got there. I mean, it is a four-hour podcast, so it's hard not to get there. But uh, maybe maybe having a greater understanding of the control of things. Like, w one mistake. I don't think this was ultimately bad, because it actually gave us some examples to work with later on. 
but I didn't know if I should have spent that much time basically just like poking him on ideas that I, I wasn't that knowledgeable of. Uh, we'll talk about that more when I get to that episode. But anyways, let's let's talk about the earlier let's let's talk about the earlier episodes first. So episode one, I already talked about some of my uh, regrets with it. I think one thing that does come through is the kind of populism versus uh, or the kind of anti-populism versus anti-elitism. I don't know. We we kind of talked about this as well, where the, there are these like fake elites, right? They're they're not actually elite in the sense of being actually more talented or actually having better judgment or implementing better policies than say robin or i or or even just like many many people who have given it serious given these ideas serious thought but rather that they're that they're this kind of status class i think we both agree that that's a problem and i'm pretty sure we agree that populism is also a problem i certainly think populism is a problem but i think this was the main point of conflict was which one of these was more of a danger and he, i think i still think that he sees the system as much more stable than it actually is well let's just kind of steel man both arguments i think the simplest argument that the american system is stable is that it's it's lasted so long it's kind of it's been challenged it's been tested many of these things that we expect to throw it off have not uh, we we've had Andrew Jackson, we've had the Civil War, so on and so forth, uh, and it's still it's still running along. But uh, I don't think it's been running along certainly without decline, without fragmentation, and this is also something that we agree on. But whether this fragmentation will lead to just like a continual sort of decadence in either the libertarian Robin Hanson sense or the kind of cultural decadence in the more uh, social conservative or kind of Ross that argument, right? He wrote this book called, um, the eight, is it called the age of decadence? I'm not so sure, but it had decadence in the title. And this is what it was, this is what it was about essentially. Uh, this kind of decline leading into some kind of sharp, noticeable conflict, a type of thing that really only arises, especially in a dominant power once every few hundred years right like you just look at how long rome lasted for example uh all of this is just so tail end and so difficult to to grasp and to even just have the right set of variables to analyze that i do think it's it, it's quite difficult to make a judgment like i might be wrong robin might be right that this kind of slow decline is much more of a threat than a sharp kind of populist uprising loss of uh rule of law violence uh i honestly am not too confident in this even even in predicting it in the near, in the near term even say like the next 20 20 years or the next 50 years is there going to be um is there going to be like a complete loss of order in some areas of the country in the next 20 years where people are just committing crimes doing um organizing into militias really taking the kind of uh violence or or physical force into their own hands. I don't think I'm. I I think Robin would be much more confident in saying no. This is not necessarily something that we explicitly discussed. You can listen back on the episode, but just his his kind of concern over this this populism threat over the threat, which I think is real, of this kind of fake elite. Um, I, I would say he would be much less. He would be much less 
he would think that scenario is much less likely than I do. Uh, I think it's, I don't know, would I give it 50-50 odds? That happens in some areas, like an entire city, possibly an entire state. Let's separate these out these claims. Do I think it will happen in an entire city in the next 20 years? I think it has more than a 10% chance of happening. I think it's probably fairly more than 10% chance. Like if I was had the over and under on 10%, I would say, uh, I, I would bet that it would happen more than 10% of the time. Uh, but what is the upper bound on that? 25? 30? I, I would have to do more research on that. Like I said, it's just so multifactorial. And you can look at historical analogs, but those operate on such a large time frame and there's really not too many of them. There are so many technological differences. Just just coming up with a list of factors on how to analyze this decision is hard enough. So I, I would say, I don't know, if I had to think of like the average probability right now, this is probably quite an ignorant answer, but I would say, I don't know, 25, 33%. One in three, one in four chance that this happens in the next next twenty years. That's my that's my kind of best guess. But I might be I might be completely wrong here. I might change my mind. What else did we? We also talked about some of his major ideas. We talked about uh, we talked about prediction markets. We talked about self deception, and I think those are very important. I'm actually recording this on like the day, a day or two after he did his podcast, or not that he did it, that he released his podcast with Lex. And I'm just looking at this. I, I listened to, I listened to the first half of it. I, I'm, I think Lex is Lex is a great interviewer. I think Robin is a great guest. I think that what they were talking about was incredibly boring. I actually talked more about uh, about the stuff I'm interested in. But I actually had a tweet about this as well, where having a podcast yourself makes us completely flip. Like, I can just invite Robin back on and talk about the stuff that I'm interested in talking about. And, uh, I mean, I did that. Uh, I, I did that uh, on episode one, and I kind of did a bad job uh, with it, right? I already talked about my regrets. I could do that again, probably. I could invite him on again, and we could we could really hash out the populism debate and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, this is one good thing about starting a podcast is that you you get less annoyed at these things. Because uh, you you and I think this is actually like very, very this is a pattern that's very common in the real world where if you have agency over some kind of thing or like obviously I don't have agency over what questions Lex asks uh, asks Robin about, but I have agency over what ideas uh, what ideas are put out into the internet, right? from uh from myself and and even from robin right uh i i got to ask him questions and i probably could uh, ask him more questions again i don't know how many people i want to rebook for season two but um having that kind of agency at least like some partial partial agency is, is just a very it's just a very positive feeling i i think i like this very much uh one fun fact about this this episode is that I believe the distance between episode one and uh, episode three, uh, the time they were recorded, is bigger than the distance between episode three and uh, and episode ten. <laughs> episode three to ten 
or especially actually episodes episodes five to episodes five to ten excluding nine were all recorded within a span of like ten days I just got I just got really good at booking or really lucky at booking for some reason and I just got all of the podcast interviews all of the time and uh, it was wonderful it was it really put me in the kind of mood all right, episode two, Steve Shu. Okay, even though I asked Robin more about, uh, I really see Steve as a kind of kindred spirit because even though I asked Robin more about things that I already knew his answer on, even then I feel like I feel like Steve and I agreed on more things, and not just me agreeing with the new ideas that I had never heard him uh, talk about publicly before, but uh, even just like the ideas I put out. Uh, as well. I think we really resonated on those things. Uh, I did, of course, the major screw up on this one is uh, on my end, I completely messed up the audio. And uh, that's why the audio quality is so bad. Uh, but, okay, it's hard because the the problem with this is that there wasn't too much course correction once again. There wasn't too much course correction. The, the, that was the main idea of going into this episode is talking about how I changed my thinking, but I didn't really change my thinking that much after this episode. We just said stuff that we agreed with. <laughs> we didn't really, we didn't really have that much disagreement. So let's talk about some of the ideas that we did express though. I think this is when I, I first talked about these kind of new networks. This has become something that I've been more uh, well known for talking about both on my own show and also on other shows like voice like um like uh, Dane Fitzgerald's show is that basically young people if not understand explicitly then understand in their kind of patterns of behavior that these legacy institutions are not the way to be connected in 20 in, in 2020 right or in the 20 uh in the 2020s that you do have to kind of have a basically networking firm on the side or or something like that, that you have to be using these kind of decentralized connections and that these are actually quite effective and, and they're quite truthful, especially in terms of areas like software, areas like science, uh, and even say like writing. I think that there, there is a bit of kind of sensationalism going on here, a bit of ideological similarity. Well, like obviously you're going to want to have mostly people who are more similar than than not, at least in terms of, in, in terms of kind of reasoning about things that are true about the world. If you think that people are just wildly wrong about a lot of things, you're not always going to be amenable to listening to them. So, so I do think that, that there are flaws to this kind of approach, but really this, this main idea that you have these, or it's, it's not even, say, an endorsement of it. It's just a statement of reality that this is what young people are doing, that they're forming their own networks. They're abandoning these kind of uh, pre prescribed networks or prescribed institutions. I, I think that this is a very important idea. And I think that it is just objectively true. Like, I don't know if this is a collected statistic, but you just, you just look at how companies hire through, how recruiters hire. And I think that there has been a very significant change in in how they go about those things a lot less spending on lot lot less spending on kind of official galas or events 
or or like print advertisements um, and a lot more spending on these kind of like local clubs and programs and hackathons and that kind of thing. Uh, that would that would and this is somewhat isolated to tech, but I think it's I think it's moving to the rest of the economy as well. Uh, one big idea that we basically had, I don't know if we specifically talked about this, but actually this inspired my next this inspired my next monologue when I still did those things. Uh, is that there? there's a saying like attribute not to malice but to stupidity and that's kind of true but stupidity is malice like it's it's actually just a terrible thing to have stupid people in charge who are doing a lot of damage and also like if those people are doing something that could be interpreted as malice right like what is worse someone is doing something that you think they have to be like so intentionally bad at doing in order to inflict as like a plot against you or people who are just so stupid that they're doing that anyway even if they don't want to hurt uh don't want to hurt you right um that the the, the latter is actually worse at least you can kind of like pay off people who are just malicious uh but people who are stupid you, you actually can't do that you you can't pay them off you can't like negotiate with them. You can't get them to do something that like is in their own interest, even if, or you can't get something, you can't make it so that it's in their own interest to do something that isn't really malicious, right? That isn't like really destructive because they don't realize it's destructive and they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. There's no reflection here. Then that person is actually worse than someone who is malicious, who is just like corrupt or self-interested or even like, even like someone who is sadistic, you can kind of you can kind of have like effective sadism, right? Like this is kind of a joke. This is maybe like the inverse of effective altruism, right? But you can say like, okay, you you want to do these kind of damages. You can kind of do like a you can kind of like put incentives on them themselves. Like we're gonna threaten your your positions of power, your kind of media influence, whatever. Um, even if we can't do away with you completely and you can kind of negotiate with these people but with someone who's stupid that's just impossible and if they're already doing the same things if they're already doing the same kind of destruction then actually like they're obviously capable of malice right and they're going to do something that is like malice not in terms of like intent but malice in terms of like they're doing something that is destructive uh, that's actually much more dangerous and maybe this is true in terms of just reasoning about things, right? It, it, that it's like not a conspiracy. Most things are not conspiracy theories. Um, I've kind of been very clear on this conjunctive principle and so on. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, but that doesn't mean you should care less about them. You, you should care a lot about stupidity and, and be very interested in removing stupid people from power. Uh, and yeah, I don't think Steve really, Steve agreed with this base, basically, I think, uh, we talked about the kind of variance in natural intelligence. Uh, we talked a bit about some of the cognitive bias of uh, kind of blank slatists, quote unquote, like elites, like status elites, Ivy League schools, about how uh, really it was kind of an exception that there were, that these schools became more meritocratic because of stuff like the Cold War. Uh, yeah, I do think it was a, it was a good conversation and it was, uh, I think it was actually the conversation that did that did best, probably because uh, Steve really liked it as well. Um, but yeah, it was it was just a very interesting it was just a very interesting uh, conversation to have, and I think that e even if I haven't changed my thinking necessarily, I've kind of solidified 
and understood uh, both my own thinking and Steve's as well and of other people uh, that we talk about uh, as well. Episode 3, Richard Hanania. I, I feel like uh, I'm being a little bit repetitive, but, but once again, a lot of stuff that we agree with. Uh, not a lot of change of thinking because of that, because a lot of his ideas are already kind of baked into my, uh, into my model of the world. We did have one really big disagreement with the kind of... Uh, he thinks... Uh, and these are not mutually exclusive, but he thinks feminization is a kind of bigger threat to kind of liberties and the reason why we have the politics that we have. And I still think it's a kind of uh, neuroticism. I think that in the examples that he gave, when he talked about the kind of universities and the kind of campus cancellation uh, and so on and so forth, uh, he, he is more, more right in that aspect than me. Uh, which, like, obviously would happen, right? You, you, if you have two competing models of the world, you, you would expect one of them to be better than, than the other in at least one scenario, right? And vice versa. You, you wouldn't expect one to be just better at explaining things in every single scenario. But I think maybe the news cycle has shifted to a point where uh, the neuroticism argument kind of makes more sense. You, you have now gun control back in the news cycle, uh, I, I still think, like, the main reason why I think it's not necessarily feminization is that you also have these things coming from the right, right? You have these, you have the TSA, you have these kind of very stupid kind of, like, counterterrorism measures that aren't very effective and make life worse for everyone, that on average destroy more hours, uh, destroy the equivalent of more lives uh, than they actually save. And I, I don't know about you, but I think most of the people advocating to be, like, tough on terrorism are not necessarily very feminine. Um, and I don't know, it's more of a mix with the, with the gun control stuff. You have a kind of like neurotic, like there, there is a kind of neurotic aspect to it, especially with the kind of like think of the children stuff, right? We talked about this explicitly in the show. Like there, there's this specific kind of neurotic who's always like, think of the children. Uh, and I guess in the, in the Simpsons, in the Simpsons, uh, show, this was originally the kind of shrill, the shrill social conservative wife, right? The the wife of the of the of uh, Reverend Lovejoy. Richard talked about this in the show, uh, and, and I do think there's probably some correlation there. Like we know that there's a correlation with neuroticism and sex, uh, where where women are more uh, likely to be neurotic, or or just have a more high, higher neuroticism on average. But I don't know, like, what is the primary component here? What is the thing that is actually more impactful? Well, I, I mean, in the end, it, it kind of makes sense that this is a situational thing, right? In some in some situations, one is more uh, meaningful than the other. But I do think you can overfit on this kind of difference. And I do think there's a kind of... And I don't think Richard is like this at all. I want to be very clear. I don't think Richard is like this at all. But I think when you have such big groups, right... The reason why I prefer neuroticism is that it's actually very specific, right? Like there's there's a very specific thing or a specific pattern of behavior uh, that you do to, to kind of point out that, okay, some people are neurotic, some people aren't. And while there are patterns of behavior that are more uh, common within women than men, uh, there are plenty, like, honestly, like the types of, the, the proportion of people that are able to think clearly and make clear cost-benefit analyses are such a small percentage of the population that maybe it's like, 
even if we just isolate it to like neuroticism, it's probably like the vast majority of men don't fall into this category. And maybe like a, a fewer number of women fall into this category. But it it's so small in the first place that whether someone is a man or a woman, you're already like, if you're just taking a random man or a woman, there's not that much difference because people are just already so likely to be too neurotic to make rational decisions on these things. Um, th that's the kind of reason I have for this. And I think there is a kind of valor in in doing this, like, uh, doing this uh, lumping, the, doing this kind of group. It's, it's almost like it, it is kind of a kind of identity politics, I think, where, where you say, like, okay, women are more likely to do X, Y, Z stupid thing. And then if you're, like, a neurotic man, you can kind of, like, bandwagon on this. If you're, like, a neurotic conservative man, you can, like, bandwagon on this, even if you say, like, want to ban doors, or or you're one of, like, the pro-TSA people. Um, I mean, I, I guess those people wouldn't be following Richard in the first place anyway, but, uh, yeah, like, like, referencing him in the critique makes no sense here, because he's certainly not like this. I don't think most of his readers are like this. But there are people in, like, broader conservatism uh, or broader politics who are like this. And I think, of, of course, the left wing is rife with this. I mean, that's what sparked this conversation in the first place, the kind of safetyism. And, like, anyone who is in, involved with that kind of thing is just so pathetic to me. But it, it is, like, it is quite common. Uh, what is the point here? Uh, and, and Richard had this other argument about basically like people overreacting to women compared to men. And and, and like I said before, it's, it's true in some aspects, it's true and not. I think in universities, he, he's right. But like in terms of terrorist attacks, in terms of like school shootings, like is that really true? Um, if it was just men doing the kind of neurotic panic, you know, like the Bandors people even, uh, would that make that much of a difference? I don't, I don't think so. The, the problem is people, people have availability bias people don't understand statistics and they'll do things that harm a large population in order to solve or not even like very effectively but in order to kind of like virtue signal in solving a problem that affects like a minuscule number of people uh one point that richard did convince me on is the threat of left-wing demagogues and that was more kind of just reality progressing the kind of price control people popping up. This conversation was actually, I think it might have been released a bit later, but this conversation was had before that was really part of the news cycle. Yeah, that, that there are people like stupid enough to still believe in price controls in, in, in 2022. Um, and, and that this is, is that this is something that actually gains political traction. Like that is something that is like very, this is very threatening. And, and you look at like the stupidity of, of Trumpism, that kind of stuff. I'm recording this during the kind of January 6th hearings. Like, this is just a, like a remarkably stupid thing. In the same way that I think Trumpism is kind of like a remarkably stupid side of conservatism. Uh, that, yeah, uh, left people are susceptible to left-wing uh, demagoguery. It is kind of a, a blessing in a way that a lot of left-wing demagogues like Sanders are forced to adopt some of these really alienating uh, cultural positions, especially alienating to to like lower class, right, or quote-unquote working class people. Um, 
it's it's funny really <laughs> i don't know in in general but that's that is also kind of why right-wing demagogues are, are i don't know actually i i think i would rate them about even but right-wing demagogues are kind of they're kind of more effective right they they're I don't know. I, I think that the the appeal of this kind of economic grievance, especially like even if you're working like even if you're working minimum wage, you can. And there there is like specific neighborhoods where this this isn't true, but you can move, right? This is this is the, something in the picture that both conservatives and liberals ju just try to cover over. But you can move. You have agency, right? I have, I have done so several times in my life already, um, and I plan to do so probably at least a few more times in the future. You can move to get a better job and to have better living conditions in a place that is less expensive. If you are if you are someone who is not making enough money to to um to pay your kind of uh to pay your rent in this like ex incredibly expensive area, you should consider going to not an incredibly expensive area. Uh and of course, there are some jobs where this is not necessarily possible, where uh, or some kind of careers where you have to be in these dense areas. Um, but almost all of them are like almost all of the things that actually benefit from these highly connected areas are are not the people who are necessarily struggling, right? Like if you're a startup founder, if you're a if you're a, uh, an executive, if you're a software engineer, like you're fine. Like the 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 jobs that are concentrated in these dense areas. Are, are exactly the ones where you don't have this problem in the first place. And you could say like, okay, maybe if you're an artist, um, if you are yeah, some sort of performer, um, maybe if you're a professional streamer, gamer, or some kind of celebrity, uh, th then yeah, maybe you don't make enough money. Uh, but at that point, you're already like, I don't know, I, I just don't have a lot of pity for the kind of like celebrity class, right? I, I don't have... Like, a, like maybe you're not able to pursue that same kind of lifestyle. You're not able to, like, quote-unquote, like, chase your dream if you move somewhere else. But, like, maybe you maybe you shouldn't. Like, do we have too many celebrities? Like, probably. Do you have too many, like, C-list celebrities? I think so. What was the initial? I, I'm already kind of, I'm already uh, rambling here. But, oh, this was about left-wing demagoguery. Yeah, so, so Eric Weinstein had this idea that, and I know I've dunked on Eric Weinstein before, but he's not hes not completely terrible. He, he had this idea that um, that the main appeal of the Elizabeth Warren types, especially, not necessarily the Sanders, but the Warrens types, the kind of economically uh, progressive and socially progressive types, uh, were primarily people who are who are in this quote-unquote precariat, that they're they're very precarious, that they have these high-status positions, uh, but that they don't actually make enough money to sustain their lifestyles. Um, the kind of journalists, celebrities, man, if we had less kind of like, if we had less dense journalists or consultants, actually, yeah, these are, this is, this is exactly the people, this more than like celebrities, right? These are the people, these are exactly the people who are like benefiting from these dense areas, but don't make enough money, 
and they don't make enough money because their work is like bad. And so they're kind of struggling to sustain their, themselves. And actually, like if we just like removed these people from these jobs, if we made them, uh, well, not necessarily like made them, but if we had the economic incentives so that they they got like normal jobs, the world would be significantly better. And I don't think like these kind of consultants, these uh, political staff members, I don't think they're like so incompetent at that point that it's it's like uh, either you're working on this campaign or you're homeless. I don't think that's the case. Like they can get some kind of mid-level, fairly cushy job in an area that's not that expensive, and they can have they can have the kind of economic lifestyle that they claim to want. It, the only thing is that it costs them a kind of social status lifestyle that they actually want, and quite frankly, that they don't deserve, right? You, you should not be living a kind of celebrity-like lifestyle if you're just like a random like consultant or a kind of like uh, a kind of like legacy journalist. That's not the lifestyle that that you should have, and people should not be, especially like people should not be subsidizing that lifestyle. Many people poorer than them should not be subsidizing that lifestyle. But yeah, because of that kind of dynamic, I do think there's a kind of force amplifier behind left-wing demagogues that you don't necessarily get. So like they're they're kind of like inherently worse, but because of like media skew, uh, they get a bit of a benefit in terms of just more people hearing hearing what they want to say. It's already even 40 minutes? Oh my goodness. Okay, so this might actually end up being a long episode. Um, episode 4. Episode 4 with Rune. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about politics here. We talked about we talked about artificial intelligence lots. Some about the tech world. Legacy journos. And I don't think we really disagreed on that much stuff either. Like, I think in general, actually talking to him on Twitter and in... In private, we disagree more. We disagree more than we had on this podcast. Uh, I don't know. What are my main takeaways here? We agreed on too many things. I don't know. Um, we agreed that AGI is kind of hard. That it'd probably be dangerous, but it's actually like just fairly hard to accomplish. Long, long timeline here. Um, the kind of Francois Chalot kind of camp. Um, we agreed on stripping power from legacy journalists and institutions and uh, word cells. Uh, yeah, not that much. Not that much of a direction shift here. All right, episode five. This was a big one. This this is the one. Episode five. If you haven't listened to it, episode five with Sam Oberia. This is the one that really shifted my thinking a lot and introduced tons of new ideas. Uh, one of his quotes about Bismarck is really sticking with me as well, which is that he, something along the lines of, he saw the world as it is, not as he wished it to be, right? Um, especially with the kind of biography articles that I've been writing, thinking about my kind of moral philosophy, and basically <laughs> how much I, I, I hate high neuroticism, low conscientiousness people. Th that is what that, that series basically is, is that I, I like... Oh my goodness! If you're if you're someone who's not agentic, who's not like working to change, who's not like disciplining yourself, who does not have that kind of internal locus of control over things that obviously only you have control over, if you're like an addict, if you're like um, if you're like neurotic, like, once again, 
and, and you're trying to impose these things on the outside world. That's just like the, the most disgusting, repulsive combination of things. Like, it's just awful. But the problem is some of those appeals, I don't think most people are like this, at least not in their natural lives. When people are susceptible to these types of appeals, at least a little bit, right? They're not like, they're the, they don't go all the way. But when you have like this kind of safetyism in the wake of a mass shooting or in the case of a terrorist attack, let's make it, let, let's hit the conservatives on this as well, because I think they are actually equally susceptible to this. Um, people are going to fall for that. And no amount of social engineering, not that I could get that kind of political power anyway, but no amount of social engineering is going to change that. Um, and so I have to live with this. I have to live with this and understand how we can build institutions that contain this kind of neurotic energy and can kind of uh, maybe pull it back once, once, the, once the swarm has passed, basically. Uh, and yeah, that's just made me a lot... That's just made me a lot more libertarian. Um, just being cynical on on how easy it is to manipulate people in such predictable ways, and how little people learn, really. Uh, and, and it is a shame. These kind of like avail availability bias uh, questions, whether it's whether it's George Floyd, whether it's libs of TikTok, whether it's school shootings, whether it's terrorist attacks, whether it's va vaccine side effects, it is the kind of ultimate, like, effective IQ test. And I say effective because some people who are, like, kind of high IQ, uh, just, like, they just stop thinking. They just turn their brains off when, when they're hit with these types of appeals. And I say, like, I have a line on this as well. I think I say it in a podcast that might not be released yet. But, uh... Basically, if you're someone who is easily emotionally manipulated, you, you might be high IQ, but you're low IQ on all of the things that matter, right? On all of the things that we need to take your word for that are that have influence in the world. You know, it's things that have influence in the world. Go people are going to have very highly emotionally manipulative uh, arguments for them. So may maybe you do good work in a kind of like research lab or something. When it comes to the real world, you're just like, you're as dumb as all of the others, and it's a real shame. I wish that this is also something that I've kind of uh, experienced in my personal life and has made me just so disappointed is that there are, there are many people I know who are like very, very kind of high IQ or like high conscientiousness, just like very good people, excellent people who I'd want to build a startup with and so on and so forth, who I'd want to actually do something with and who I'm still friends with who just like fall for this and and it's like it's like the it's like the charlie brown thing right like the the girl i forgot what her name is she she just like tells charlie brown uh okay come kick this football and every single time she pulls it back and he just keeps falling for it over and over and over again and it's like it's, it's like it's like imagining like charlie brown is some kind of like savant who is like incredibly uh, knowledgeable and understanding and intelligent on many different issues but on like one specific issue or on a specific set of issues where like you know what's coming you know what emotionally manipulative tactic they're going to use it's always availability bias every single time uh, and they just keep falling for it and the existence of these people and the inability of me to change them even just in my personal life is something that has made me like has made me despair a lot but uh, uh the kind of outtake 
from uh, from my conversation with Samo and from reading more about Bismarck and about uh, really about how politics actually happens is that um, in a way this is negotiable at least right you can negotiate somewhat with these kind of instincts you can create an environment of not just kind of performative safety but like actual actual kind of economic uh, uh, economic certainty at least economic safety doesn't kind of doesn't make any sense um, but economic certainty uh, such that these appeals are dampened you you can and, and out of that you can create structures that can bind human nature towards doing things that are actually productive and that, that's a very very hard task uh, as Robin Henson said uh, it's much more difficult to uh, I, this isn't exactly what he said but something along these lines it's much more difficult to uh, to it, it's it's easier to solve the problem than it is to solve the problem in a way that, lets people continue telling the story, telling their narratives about what they think the problem was. Okay. This is deeply related to, I think, the number one idea I've taken away that's completely changed my way of thinking about politics, which is this idea of narrative hedging. That you, you tell a narrative, uh, and you tell a narrative so that uh, it absolves yourself of responsibility. And this is kind of basic marketing, right? If you have, if you've ever looked at like a press secretary, not even just for like a president or something like that, or a politician, but for for a company, this is what happens, right? You have bad uh, earnings call or something like that. You you fire a bunch of people. You have layoffs. It's like okay, we are we are recharting our course. We are um, building. We are building a stronger team for the future, and so on and so forth. It's spin. But. The main takeaway here is not just that this happens on a kind of individual level or that it happens on a on a kind of corporate level, but that there are these incentives that make it so that it happens on a societal level, that people who are experiencing de this decline are so unwilling to kind of admit this, that there are these stories about the act about the nature of the problem that basically, don't admit that this is the result of a terrible mismanagement. And that people who aren't necessarily those involved play along with this narrative because there is a kind of... Um, man, how did we talk about this in the original podcast? There's a kind of etiquette around this. And it's disgusting. Like, there, there is nothing more repulsive to me than a situation where two groups purporting to be enemies, right, Democrats and Republicans, uh, agree to tell stories that absolve the other, that absolve each other. Sorry, there, there's no, there's no end thought to that. That is just something that is just absolutely repulsive. It goes against, uh, it goes against my pursuit of truth. It goes against my order of the more competent over the less competent. That is the main, that is the main principle of order, in the world. And this kind of na narrative hedging. 
which is only possible if you have a kind of pseudo media monopoly or a media monopoly over at least a uh, a dominant an overwhelming segment of the population as I think the kind of two-party system in the U.S. has as I think um, most political systems in, in Western countries or in the world in general have. Yeah, I'll have more on narrative hedging in the future. It is such a big idea and the kind of practical consequences. I talk about this. You can think of the Doomberg episode, episode nine, as a kind of sequel to the Samoburia episode of the consequences of this stuff. Uh, and it is, it is, it's, it's incredibly striking. It's, it's millions of people not being able to afford what they could afford before. It's a shortage of energy and in food, if not in the U.S. and everywhere else. It's, it's a kind of biblical disaster. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I will formalize this more in the future. This has just been very compelling and in alignment with everything else that I talk about as well. Uh, and I've give, and we give plenty of ev evidence of this happening. in, for example, uh, energy. Uh, I think in. Uh, fertility or immigration and so on and so forth it's just in finance especially uh, this is just very frequent this is the kind of low energy ideology this is the kind of anti-natalism uh, which is just kind of in denial about basic physics once again this is what i talk about with doomberg as well that's the kind of that's the kind of sequel to this we'll talk about that uh, or okay let's save more to talk about for when we get to episode nine Episode 6, Rob Henderson. Okay, so this episode, aside from aside from the Robin Hanson one, I, I saw it actually went quite badly. And it went, went quite badly not because of any kind of direct opposition from the guest or even some kind of flub on my part, but the roadmap to what I really wanted to, to get to which was this kind of generational turnover idea and this kind of psychological profile of gen actually do you know what the problem was the problem was we didn't do enough prep i i usually don't do this with my guests but i, I should have just asked him to like pull up a bunch of uh or or i could have given them to him as well to just look at uh, a few specific studies books I was surprised. I, some of this was actually also just surprise. I was actually very surprised that he hadn't uh, gone through at least the key figures from Jean Twenge's book, iGen. Uh, we talked about this in the podcast. He he was surprised about the anxiety number, um, which was one of the most striking numbers from the entire book. Uh, but yeah, this was like, there was a big prep problem. And actually, I'm just actually thinking about this now. Uh, that's something that I maybe should be more bold in doing. I think the discussion on moral norms was great. It was very interesting. I think it, yeah, especially coming off of the, especially coming off of the Sam Oberia interview. Uh, this was two days after the Sam Oberia interview, um, in terms of when it was actually recorded. Uh, having that idea of viewing the world as it is, and human nature as it is, just stuck in my mind, and I think that was kind of the highlight of the podcast.
But yeah, we, we still talked about lots of stuff that I think is valuable to my audience. I don't think it was a bad episode per se. Like, I, I still think it was better than most episodes that exist kind of out there, right? Even on semi-famous podcasts. But yeah, missed opportunities. Might have him on again as well. But I think I'm seeing him in real life very soon as well. So uh, maybe a chance to catch up on that too. Cool. Or I guess that will have already happened by the time this episode is out. But uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. Okay. Episode 7, BJ Campbell. So I, I know BJ uh, fairly well. Um, we're kind of internet friends. We've never met in real life. But uh, yeah, it is kind of strange. I, I made a remark in the opening that, that still stuck with me is that we basically have the same analysis on terms of general kind of abstract concepts. Maybe we just talk about things in as vague of a terms as we do. That's kind of one kind of problem. But the thing is, we don't, we as in BJ and I specifically, when we discuss these things, we don't talk about it in such general terms. We talk about it in a lot of specifics uh, in terms of the mechanisms of action, in terms of the patterns of behavior that actually happen. We talk about it at quite a granular level and we even agree on those granular on those like near granular details. But when we apply it to kind of issues, for example, on like lockdowns, lab leak, so on and so forth, it's, it's like quite different. We come to like completely uh, different conclusions. It's, it's very interesting. And, and maybe that's what I want to ask more about. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is the problem with having a podcast. I have questions that I still want to ask of basically every single guest, especially when I re-listen to the episode. And of course, I am not booking, I am not booking every single guest again for season 10. <laughs> that would not be a good idea. Um, as kind of, as kind of hilarious as that might be. No, I'm trying to keep myself to like, I think two, at most three guests that I rebook. And I really don't want to rebook that many. Especially since season two is only, is 10 people again, right? Because So if I book two people, it's already 20%. Maybe I actually only want to book one. I definitely want to book at least one uh, person to come on again. Who I actually um, basically promised to have him on again because we didn't get to discuss everything as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, a lot of this is resolved. A lot of our differences is just is just kind of like path dependency, right? It's just It's just like what information that we have. This also relates to what we talk about with Ron Unz, right? Is that is that the specifics matter? The specific information that you're exposed to, that stuff matters. Uh, and yeah, so maybe it's not that surprising. Maybe it's not that surprising that we agree on a general framework. And it's actually kind of a fault in my assumptions and my thinking that I would expect us to agree on the specifics. Uh, there are a few things that I'm a bit, uh, that I really updated from as well. Uh, actually, it, it was kind of this in combination with the Ronan's uh, episode. Uh, I, I do think, at, especially compared to the BJ Campbell episode, I do think I underweight collusion a lot. I think that I I think that I thought that the probability of collusion was lower than it actually was, especially at a small scale. I do think at a large scale, it's still basically impossible. Um, and, and by large, I mean like kind of thousands or more most kind of quote-unquote conspiracy theories are like this all the world economic forum stuff all of the like the, the QAnon stuff 
even the, like the anti-vax stuff you you need so many kind of independent actors all getting together so many different failure points of them possibly um of like really thousands of people involved in collecting the data and possibly exposing this that it's just not very uh it's it, it's just really infeasible um but that on a smaller scale things like for example the maidan stuff really kind of typical CIA stuff that we know has happened before that only requires like a small team like a dozen people maybe um to be aware of I think that that's I I probably underestimated the possibility of that happening before this is the kind of Francis Collin letter as well with regard to the lab leak stuff Uh, I really appreciate BJ pushing me on that and um I don't know there's also this kind of like media this kind of like similar thing of basically like partial partially people just being wrong i do think a lot of people were just wrong about lab leak uh right uh and uh and also about uh about some of the other stuff that we talked about in the episode as well but at the same time like were there some fraction of people that would have stood up and that didn't because of this kind of internal pressure like that's plausible especially if it's not like particularly widespread and we actually do know that there was at least an attempt to create this kind of influence, right? From the kind of, uh, from the intercept, from the intercept FOIA requests. Okay, episode episode eight with Jacob Siegel. Uh, the funny thing is, is that we had, we had a dis, we had disagreements, but the whole podcast this wasn't my intention actually or it was partially my intention like i decided to kind of go at this angle a bit in the middle in the kind of middle of the show while i was doing it but the whole podcast was kind of framed around reconciling debate and the importance of debate and conflict that i kind of didn't feel that much of a need to resolve it if that makes sense um for for example the debate about kind of the responsibility of Joe Biden in in contributing to a kind of administrative state and a kind of wokeness that pre uh, that predated him. Uh, I still think I'm right on that question. I don't think Joe Biden bears that much responsibility for doing that, um, especially since he kind of has like practical he kind of has like practical po- politics considerations to to take in mind, right? Um, any Democrat is going to have a kind of institutional barrier if they're going to try to prevent these things from happening. Uh, yeah, would it be better if he did? Of course it would be. But is he kind of a bad person for not doing it that much? I don't know. Uh, I don't, I would, I would say no. I I could be convinced otherwise, but I would say no. And I, w- I would still say no after the the conversation we had um yeah this is actually getting to be quite a long episode i i I expected this to be like a short episode maybe it's not long for for my audience uh it, it will probably still be the shortest from the new world episode but i mean i've been just talking continuously and i do want to i do want to kind of wrap this up all right episode nine doomberg uh, so Doomberg has this kind of aesthetic that I really like, where he basically does like energy math, um, or 
their their team basically just puts together some very simple calculations that says like okay the there is this like obvious contradiction here it's like this this very like shape rotator aesthetic uh there were actually a lot of things so so Doomberg ran out of time a lot sooner than I thought he would because he said and, and this isn't to like uh, to like really like criticize him because I think he he assumed that by however long okay so he 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 said we can talk about things for however long you want and I think he made the assumption that he was going on a on a normal podcast with a normal audience who didn't listen to four-hour episodes. Like, I don't think I've... I, I think, actually, my podcast with him is the longest interview he has ever done. But, um... <laughs> but he, he said, okay, we can talk for however long you want. We talked for a bit more than two hours. It was cut down in post-production. Uh... <laughs> We and then and then he he had to go and I was like, what? I have an hour and a half more content just just waiting, and uh, that was a that was a disappointment. We didn't get to debate Solar, which uh, I think was unfortunate. That was probably the biggest disagreement I had with him. I think that I I'm a lot more bullish on Solar, and I might get actually someone uh, someone to come on who is kind of an expert on these things. Uh, in uh, in season two, actually, um, because of like a series of events, I might actually have two people to talk about similar issues. Um, maybe I'll have less of a focus on solar on one person who might be just more uh, generally talking about climate, which I do think I'm kind of more pro-establishment on than almost anyone in this kind in this space. Uh, or or I should say pro-establishment on. I talked about this with Samoburia. There's kind of two. There's kind of two halves of the kind of uh, uh, of the kind of climate change or the kind of like anti-climate change people, like like the people who want to stop climate change, who believe it's happening and want to stop it. Uh, there, there's the high energy people and the low energy people, and the high energy people uh, mostly are kind of capitalists, Elon Musk, right? Like the the way we solve uh, climate change is by making solar so good and electric cars so good and energy so good that we just don't have to use fossil fuels, that we actually have a useful alternative. We go all in on technological development. And then there's kind of low energy people, which are basically, we're going to lower people's quality of life uh, in order to fight climate change. Uh, and I'm very solidly in the former camp. And the former camp isn't just kind of like founders and stuff like that. It's also um, it's also like Matt Iglesias, Alex Stopp, a lot of these kind of like center, uh, center left policy thinkers who just, you know, can, can read papers <laughs> and... Uh, and yeah, I think it's actually more on the center left than than the kind of right wing because I don't know. I, I do wish the the right wing would be kind of more high energy and really talk about this stuff. Uh, I mean, like Elon Musk gives them a gives them an opportunity to talk about this stuff, right? We we kind of want like an Elon type future in terms of fighting climate change. Uh, yeah, the 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 biggest lie on the kind of left-wing side and and i want to be clear most scientists were not saying this it was the activists who were saying this most active and most scientists recognized that it was kind of like a it was kind of like an open question we didn't know for sure and now we know uh now we know a lot for, a lot more 
uh, certainly that when the activists were kind of saying like capitalism won't solve this problem that was actually bullshit uh, that, that was complete bullshit uh, capitalism has done more to solve this problem than anything else in terms of creating or you can okay you can say like okay uh, funding of basic research was important. Carbon markets was important for this. Okay, you had public, you had public-private partnerships where the government had a role as well. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Th that was not what the activists were expecting either. Uh, and I'm not necessarily against the kind of basic science funding. I would fund. Uh, I I think we should have more funding for DARPA probably and those kind of similar projects. Uh, th this kind of innovation funding I think is excellent. Um. Uh, but yeah, having that scaled via capitalism and having uh, having both the incentive to innovate, right, either either privately or you can incentivize it to increase it even further by subsidizing it uh, publicly uh, on something that you think you really care about, like climate change. I don't think that's necessarily a mistake. I think public funding of basic science is, is one of the most effective things that you can do with public money. Uh, but yeah, anyways... Back to the conversation with Doomberg. Uh, yeah, I think I've actually heard... I don't know he, if he actually recorded this afterwards, but I've heard one more appearance from him. And I've actually... I, I've read another article from him th that I'm pretty sure was written afterwards that did incorporate some of the ideas of, like, uh, midwits and bureaucracies. I think we mostly agreed on that as well. Um yeah, I, I kind of solidified this idea in a really good line in the podcast. You probably uh, remember it because it's quite stuck out, which is that bureaucracy is the art of uh, of converting explicit hierarchies, or sorry, explicit competition into implicit competition, where there's all this hidden office politics and bullshit like that, and it just results in like a, a worse person getting the promotion or getting the job, and it's terrible. Uh, yeah, just talking about that, I also think... Yeah, Doomberg, much. I, I talked about this a little bit, but his kind of aesthetics of just being someone who cares a lot about truth and cares a lot about seeing the world as it is and working in that same kind of way, in that same kind of lifestyle. I think I, that, that appeals to me a lot. Uh, and I mean, I did ask him about doing the consulting stuff as well. That was, <laughs> that was a little bit uh, of a... Uh, of a insider question or a personal question, but but hey, it was like it was like five percent of the interview. <laughs> I'm I'm sure there are people who are interested in that stuff in my audience too, so I I don't really regret that. Okay, episode ten, run-ons. That's the big one, finale. Uh, the huge bomb drop. <laughs> yeah, was there? <laughs> Was there more disagreement on this one or on the Jacob Siegel episode? I'm not sure. This episode was not about the value of disagreement, though. <laughs> this was about, um, really about how I think about the world. And it was very interesting. And I was really, really glad to have, I think, like, maybe, like, a normal person, like, this is the thing that they liked least about the interview when Ron Unz called me out on basically the framing of the show. I was like... The framing of the show is that these, there are these general patterns and that we want to learn about them and apply them uh, to the world. And he's like, he, he's like, I think that's bullshit. I think that the specifics matter a lot more than the general pattern. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to, I think that the, the way I'm operating off the specifics just, just is much more productive. Uh, 
And I mean, uh, Ron is a lot more older than me. He's a lot, he has a lot more of that wisdom. He's, he's done, he's had this experience in uh, actually founding a company, co-founding a company that was successful and later got acquired. Uh, and I think I should take his critique to heart. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that I only go forward operating in the same way, right? That that I basically like start a start a clone of Don's review or something like that. No, um, I, I do think he over-indexes on some parts of this. I think he over-indexes on certainty in a lot of cases. But at the same time, I do think this kind of subject matter knowledge does matter a lot. And that I had undervalued it in my model, especially on the issues specifically that he was talking about. I think on the spe issues specifically that he was talking about, uh, there was there is there is less of an impact of this kind of general model. I think when you get to something that is so broad and that is so uh, that is really interacting with both human nature, with structures of institutions in such an active way, like wokeness or like. Uh, uh, like bureaucracies, like the structure of companies, uh, I think having a general model is incredibly powerful and is, is much better than having a kind of like microanalysis kind of method, right? I think you just kind of, you just get lost in the weeds if that happens to you. you you're just not able to draw any kind of, uh, of general insight if, if that happens to you in those areas. But when we were talking about foreign policy, when we're talking about uh, stuff like the Maidan revolution, uh, even even just like the specific kind of knowledge points, right? He he was right about the bio warfare uh, quote uh, from Mar from uh, Marco Rubio. I was wrong about that, right? Um, just just having that thoroughness, uh, I think that's like a huge strength of Ron's. Um, and I mean, okay, like I talked about this in the podcast as well, or I mentioned this in a few lines that I actually did not plan on talking about Ukraine or about foreign policy. Uh, really much at all. So, so there, there is that point, right? Like, it, it, it's not like I was like, okay, let's talk about Ukraine and let's ask these very general questions. No, uh, he wanted to talk about Ukraine. Uh, I didn't mind it, but I was not intending to talk about Ukraine at the uh, at the beginning. It, it just kind of went there, and it ended up being very relevant for our thinking. But yeah, I think it's a very important critique of the show. Now, now, what does this mean for changing? my thinking going forward or changing the frame of the show going forward. Am I still going to say that there are, am I just going to say like, no, we should just be like completely looking at specifics here. We should not be trying to, uh, to generalize. Well, no, I think that would be, uh, under generalization. Uh, you would be correcting too much there. Uh, I think that, like I said, when you have these patterns, uh, I, I do have an article in the works and I did talk with BJ Campbell about this as well, about when things become so hyper-connected that they are, um, that they can basically generate uh, that they can generate very close to optimal uh, things for compelling people to do uh, to, to like care a lot politically, basically. I think that in those environments that these general models are much more successful in terms of foreign policy, where so much matters uh, depends on Putin and his inner circle and uh, and like whoever is president, whether it's Biden or Trump and his inner circle and so on and so forth, where the personalities matter so much. Um, I think that applying, I think that you should be skeptical, skeptical of applying these kind of general models. Uh, 
and I generally am. This is why I don't talk a lot about foreign policy, is because I think that it's it, it's quite far away from the from the things that I talk about, from the things that I'm really thinking about. Um, okay, so the other thing, thinking about the methodology of the show, is probably just talking about. I mean, I, I have to mention thinking about the kind of COVID biowarfare stuff as well. Uh, and the big question, the big question is whether that falls into the kind of general model thing, whether it falls into a pattern of behavior where the specifics matter more or where the generalities matter more. Um, and that is a question that is up in the air, and I believe it is still up in the air because of a very interesting trait about this, which is that it did not necessarily have to be a kind of top-down uh, organized thing. It could be just you could just have one team, one branch that goes off and does this project and that it can that it can really escalate without even someone like Donald Trump figuring it out uh, or finding out in general. And it goes to the question of like what what really is a conspiracy theory, right? And, and what makes conspiracy theories usually wrong? Uh, and I've talked about this a lot in the past. I've talked about bringing kind of network science uh, into the kind of podcast land. I've talked to this with BJ Campbell on this very podcast of, of basically like the, the problem with conspiratorial uh, with consp with. Okay. Well, let's frame this in the actually opposite way, right? Like, like, let's say I wanted to affect some change and I wanted to basically create a conspiracy, right? I wanted to organize a conspiracy to do a certain thing. The problem is, is that, the more people you add to that conspiracy, the greater the chance of defection, the chance that they grab some document, that they have some process. And of course, you can limit this as intelligence is very effective in doing. But the more you scale, uh, I believe that there's some kind of uh, there's some kind of exponential threshold where it just becomes impossible. Because I think everyone has some just baseline probability of defecting, no matter how many incentives you put on them. And because of that, you can model this as an exponential function with the number of people involved. Uh, now, where exactly that cut point is, is kind of unknown, right? It depends on what procedures you have, how easy it is to actually expose the conspiracy, uh, how many uh, what's the type of work involved, what type of people are you hiring, uh, so on and so forth. There, there's a lot of esoteric factors, but I think that at least something on the scale of, say, like Stop the Steal, Anti-Vax, which would require really like several thousand at the very least, or like the kind of mass racism conspiracy theories, of course, that would require actually more, right? That, that's the most insane one. Okay, like Q QAnon maybe requires more, right? That would require like hundreds of thousands of people just like all coordinating and lying, and it's just absurd on its face. Uh, now, where does the COVID biowarfare uh, idea stand on that? Um, well, we talked about Maidan earlier, and that's where something where I think I was too skeptical of him, right? I think when when he presented the Maidan case, especially listening back, I think he was he made a much more compelling argument than I did, at least in the sh in the in the limits in the confines of the episode. Uh, so is it closer to something like that? Is it closer to something like um, uh, something like uh, CoIntel Pro, uh, which we know from uh, from FOIA requests actually did happen? Or is it closer to something like, uh, is it closer to something like anti-vax? 
where you had a bunch of studies that were well replicated and published and to really uh, have all of them come out this way would require like really like thousands of people working together. Um, my kind of background in pandemic preparedness and existential risk uh, actually leads me to putting this more towards the former category. Now, this doesn't mean that it definitely happened, right? There are a lot of kind of you can allege a, a bunch of small conspiracies that are still unlikely, right? That are still, like, I don't know, that you you still should be uncertain about, that you should still have up in the air. But in terms of saying, like, you need a, you need a small team, you need maybe, like, two or three people with the kind of technical knowledge. Um, you need some type of person with the kind of political sway in the intelligence agency. And, like, you just look at the COINTEL Pro model, right? You just look at the kind of documents that they drafted in terms of uh, some of the uh, some of the plans there. And uh, this would not be something that, like, let's say that this was part of the COINTEL Pro disclosures, that something like this was at least planned. Not necessarily that it succeeded, but that, that it was planned. This would not be, like, a huge, this would not be, like, a huge deviation from everything else that was there. Now, does this mean that I think that that I'm certain that this is the case? No. Uh, does that mean I think it should be censored or that is nearly as deranged as the kind of mass racism conspiracy theories or even just kind of like the anti-vax stuff? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I think it's in a category uh, that is much closer to the, to the kind of Maidan stuff than it is to uh, the latter. And... So do I think that this is necessarily something go that's going to be like? And then there's this kind of like there's this kind of stupid passion pattern matching by people who don't actually know how to do math. Like, here's something that I just realized when I was trying to like basically I I started off I started off my entire kind of political posting career basically trying to bring network science to the kind of independent space, trying to say like, okay, here's how you actually kind of study these things. But the people who study these things are awful. They may have tools that are somewhat formalized and somewhat accurate, but their kind of assumptions and the conclusions that they draw from it are stupid. Uh, they're completely they're completely unwilling to address the elephant in the room, which is the mass racism conspiracy theory that plagues a lot of the institutions that they work at. Uh, and that a lot of the time cons the allegations of a conspiracy theory are just are just used by awful awful people uh for bad ends and often to promote their own conspiracy theories that they uh don't apply the same standards to so just the kind of critique of like okay why are you talking to ron uns or like why are you talking to ron uns about stuff that you didn't even talk about on the show and other stuff that you might disagree with and and like I've talked with him in private, there are there are things that we've disagreed with in private that are not in in the show, of course. Uh, but like this kind of stupid pattern matching is just like it pisses me off. Uh, it is a sign of like someone who just can't think, who doesn't have the statistical reasoning in their head who's operating off of like either social conformity or, or just like, as I said, pattern matching, this kind of like linear thinking that really is just incoherent. 
that no one should fall for, and some people, even some intelligent people do. And it's just disgusting. Um, the, it's another low IQ test, or like an effective low IQ test, right? If, if you are doing this type of pattern matching, or if you're engaging in the politics of contagion at all, right? If you're saying, not contagion as in like literal viruses, but saying like, you should not talk to people because they've talked to X or they've funded a site that has hired a person who has said X. Like, fuck off. People who do that are just awful, awful people, uh, many times as bad as the people that are actually critiquing in terms of spreading conspiracy theories. And they should be given no power, and that includes no power to um, to stigmatize people in the independent space. Like, just fuck them. Okay. You can tell... You can tell that I've gotten less and less focused as this episode has continued. But I think all the ideas that I want to do expressive have shown clear. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, you can help us out by subscribing, by telling a friend, uh, by recommending an episode. I don't know if this is the episode to get people interested, but certainly any of the others. Uh, and by really contributing, building on these ideas, thinking about them. That's something that I, that I haven't, uh, haven't explicitly encouraged enough. I think people just naturally do it. But uh, uh, yeah, I encourage you to think about these ideas. That would be a great thing as well. And, and like comment. Uh, let me know what you think. We'll be back next week with another episode, or uh, more than one episode, for our Season 2 launch. Get hyped. Get ready. Uh, be ready. Be ready to see it. Until next week, this is the From the New World Podcast.